Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Well, thank you to our worship team here and in Rossville. I know they did a fantastic job there as well. Thank you for being here at 11 o'clock service. And we're down a little bit in youth today. All the schools had prom last night, so that's always a, a, a rough on a Sunday. But man, thank you so much for being here. Now, I'm starting a new sermon series today entitled Glue. And uh, sometimes you feel like your family is falling apart. You know, it, it, we would use the term... Often, well, I feel like we're coming unglued. We'll say that about our marriage, our children, our finances, our emotions. Everything just can kind of get going sideways. And we, we say things like, well, my family's coming unglued. But the, there is hope. The Bible tells us how we can glue our families back together. So I want to start a sermon series today called Glue, Making Your Family Stick. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about it and just be very, very practical about how we do it. So, so if you're new to our church, you won't recognize the difference. But if you've been here a little while, let me just say this. These are not going to be my normal type sermons. These are, this is not normally how I preach. I'm going to try my best to be as practical as rubber meets the road as what I can possibly be. So you're going to see a lot of information up on the screen. And I encourage you to take as many notes as you can, especially as the Lord speaks to your heart. We're going to take all these notes and we're going to put them online at pvine.org slash glue. Give us a few days to do it because it's going to be a lot for you to digest today. But these are going to be a blend of um, uh, just practical tips that come from the Bible. They are, they are, some of them are common sense. Some of those, some of them will be research. Some of those will be years of observation. I've been the ministry pastor for over 25 years, and so some of these will just be years of observation. You say, well, preacher, do you have to tell us common sense stuff? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Because you, you do a lot of marriage counseling. Look, we've all been there. You do a lot of marriage counseling. Marriages fail over dumb stuff right? Like just common sense stuff and families fall apart over dumb stuff. So we're going to, we're going to try to all just turn down our own stupidity, right? Cause that's what our problem, we're our own biggest problem. So I'm doing this cause I really have a heart for families, like not just in America in general. We, we we're having an issue with families in the church in particular. Uh, we have an issue with families. I mean, because uh, we, we've got to work with that. My heart is to help you. And so I'm going to try to be very, very practical, very, very helpful but it's going to be, these sermons are going to be a lot different. I'm not preaching expository sermons. That is where you go to one text, you read five verses, and you stay in those five verses. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to do what we call topical preaching, which is very not my norm. I'm going to do topical preaching, and I'm going to give you a point and a verse to go with it from the Bible, and then we're just going to dive into that point a little bit. So it's going to be a little different. Hang on. For all you deep theologians who this is upsetting you, if, if you're upset, I want you to go home, take everything and study it out better and bring me a report next week, all right? So you can go home and do all the work for me, but I'm trying to be very, very practical. And today I want to preach on this subject, seven ways to make your marriage stick. 
Seven ways to make your marriage stick. Hey, jot that down while you're doing it. Let me say, really, we, we, we appreciate your prayers for Jackson, my grandson, Josh's son. He's still in NICU there at Erlanger, and he maybe he's getting a little better, and we, we hope there's light at the end of the tunnel for him to get to come home. But you pray, continue to pray for little Jackson, uh, that God give him strength, and he'd learn how to eat. Doesn't make sense for somebody with the last name Sutherland not to know how to eat, but he can't figure out how to eat. And so uh, if we can get him eating, then he'll do a lot better. And you just pray for uh, mom and dad's strength, Josh and Michaela's strength as they uh, go through all that. So, hey, let's talk about seven ways to make your marriage stick. Now, let me give you some what research says. Research says married people who rated their marriages as very happy or or pretty happy had roughly 20% lower odds of dying... I didn't say divorce, I said dying, then people who rated their marriages not too happy. So get this, if you rate your marriage very happy or pretty happy, you're less likely to die than somebody who rates their marriage as not too happy. Now, the the caveat is the people who rated their marriage not too happy wanted to die, but nevertheless, if you... If you rate yours as very happy or pretty happy, you're less likely to die. That's according to the Journal of Health Psychology. The work expands on existing studies that link marriage uh, to a number of positive health outcomes from, get this, a healthier heart to a trimmer waistline. Co-author of the study, Professor Mark Wiseman, says there are several ways that a good marriage seems to improve your health. For one thing, married people encourage their spouses to adopt healthy habits, eating well, exercising, and see a doctor regularly. So if you're in a happy marriage, your, uh, your, your spouse is encouraging you to be healthier. If she slides another piece of cake across the table, that may tell you something about your marriage. She's like, no, eat all that butter. I'm fine with it. I don't care. There are also a number of ways that a supported marriage seems to help psychological health, which also translates into physical well-being. So here's what he says. In, in general, marriage provides people with meaningful roles and identity, a purpose in life, a sense of security. Those kind of psychological factors might influence your health. Strong marriages in particular may improve mental health and mental well-being, which we know the more mentally healthy and emotionally healthy you are, the more physically healthy you'll be. He says that a happy marriage provides a degree of social support above and beyond family, friends, and plenty of research suppose that, uh, uh, proposes that's good for health. Here's what he says. A high-quality marriage can serve as a buffer against chronic or, uh, or acute stressors in life. Now, get this. If you're in an unhappy marriage, that is a chronic stressor in your life already. Your marriage is. But when you live in a happy marriage... That marriage actually buffers you against stress coming at you. Here's what they discovered. That unhappy marriages link you to poorer physical health. Unhappy marriages, get this, people who rate themselves in unhappy marriages have a higher risk of heart disease and more instances of high blood pressure. So here's what the study concluded. Your physical health could be a mirror of your marriage health. Now, now hear me. I'm not saying because you're physically unwell, you have a bad marriage. But I'm saying a bad marriage could make you physically unwell. That's what science tells us. And so what science is telling us is that a good marriage, a healthy marriage is key to your health. 
that a good marriage is key to your overall family health, that a, a good marriage, can I say this, is key to the church. Can I tell you, it is hard for you to want to worship and praise God when you've been in a knockdown drag out on the way to church on Sunday morning. Like, I can tell you to get your hands in the air all you want, but if, if you want to raise your hand and punch the person next to you, that's not worship. And one reason we aren't better gospel evangelists than what we are is our own family life is not attracting a lost and dying world. The church would be better if your marriage were better. Society would be better if your marriage was better, that we are watching the institution of marriage crumble right in front of us. And one of the reasons it's crumbling is people have become disillusioned with marriage because they've been in such a horrible one for so long. Well, how do we reverse that? How do we have a happy marriage? How do we have a marriage that sticks and it is a marriage that's not just pleasing to God, but a marriage that is happy, a marriage that builds your home, a marriage that stays together and enjoys staying together. Here's what I want to do today. I want to give you seven ways to make a marriage stick. I'm going to give you the main point. I'm going to give you a verse under it, explain it, and give you some practical tips. So get ready to write down, or you can look them up next week online. Here's how we do it. Number one is happy couples talk more. Happy couples talk more. Now, here's the, the great, you, you, if you've not been in church much, you don't know this. There's a book in the Old Testament called The Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a love poem, a love story written between two lovers, husband and wife, bride and groom. It is written between these two, and uh, it's an amazing love story. Now, some people believe, and I do too, it's also a picture of uh, uh, Christ in the church, God in Israel, and I, and I believe all that too, but primarily at its core, The Song of Solomon is a, is a love book between a bride and a groom, a husband and a wife. There's a lot we can learn about marriage from the Song of Solomon, but there's a verse in there tucked away in the, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 14. Here it is on the screen. Oh, my dove. Now, they have all these cute nicknames for each other, like goat and stuff like that, and, and, and that's not a joke, and so it must have meant something else a couple thousand years ago, but... Uh, uh, oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Now, get this. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Here's what we learn from the Song of Solomon, that those two lovers, that, those bride and the groom, that husband and wife, they love to talk to one another. They love to hear each other's voice. And here's what we know about happy marriages, that happy marriages communicate, that happy marriages, they talk to each other. In happy marriages, they spend time alone together. In happy marriages, they get to know each other. One study found, by the way, I have an enormous amount of footnotes in this. I'm not going to give you all that. You don't care. Just trust me. All right? I got it. But here's what one study said. One study found that happy couples talk more, and get this, an average of five more hours per week than unhappy couples. So that means if you assume everybody talks equal on the weekends, that Monday through Friday, happy couples spend an hour more a day in communication 
than unhappy couples. Here's what that means. You have to talk to each other. You have to communicate. You have to share. You have to open up. A happy marriage is going to require you to communicate. Now, I know sometimes you know, some of you young couples, you got kids everywhere. I know you got, I know it's hard to find the time to communicate, but I'm telling you, you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out how to call one another during the day. You've got to figure out send, how to send a text. It's never been easier to communicate than what it is right now. You've got to figure out how to use this. You've got to figure out how to sit down and talk to one another face to face you have to find the time I travel a lot for uh, during the week I'm gone on a plane all the time listen my wife and I'll sit down at night I'll get to the hotel room I'll open up my iPad and we will we will FaceTime sometimes for 30 45 minutes just reliving every part of the day now you used to do that when I when I first started dating my wife if, if you don't know we uh, uh, she was 15 almost 16 I was 16 almost 17 we met at the Love Shack shop right in Chatsworth and so uh we, we dated, and it was different times, man. You students, even some of you in your 20s, it's hard to explain uh, what we grew up in. We didn't have internet. We didn't have a mobile phone. We didn't have a text message. We didn't have Facebook. Here's what we had. We had a mailman and a landline. Now, I, I don't even know how to explain a landline. A landline was a phone that was connected to the wall, and a cord went into the wall. I don't even know how to, like, I know that seems weird, but it does to me now. And a mobile, we had a mobile phone. Cherry had a cord on her kitchen that was about 100 feet long. So she could walk outside, and the longer your cord, the cooler you were, because you could walk around a little bit on your phone. We started dating, and we, we quickly developed into this routine. She could only date once a week. So the only way I communicate with her was at church. So I started going to everything at church. Like I showed up on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, WMU, visitation, clean the church, you name it. I was there all the time. I, not a joke. I was there. I'd write her letters, go by and put them in her mailbox. I'd take a letter from her with me. And then because her, 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 their parents were pretty strict, she'd only allowed that one day a week. But we, we started calling each other every day. And so early on in our relationship, we, and see this, I don't even know how to explain this concept. You just couldn't call anywhere. It was called long distance. I wish I could just explain. Does anybody remember when long distance companies used to call you all the time trying to sell you better long distance? I mean, man, that seems like so long ago. But I lived in Gordon County. She lived in Murray County. And that was a long distance phone call. Here's what that means. They charged you by the minute for the phone call. And so one month I ran up a couple of hundred dollar phone bill. My parents weren't impressed. And my dad forbid me from calling her ever again from the home phone. And so I used to go by. And uh, on my way to work or school, on the way back from school, high school, I'd go by. Even in college, I'd, I'd stop by. And for years, I went to a payphone. Now, it's hard to describe what a payphone is. <laughs> it, right? I mean, like, try to explain that to your kid. I mean, it's not y'all's fault. I mean, thank God I have this now. But a payphone was basically a phone with a cord on it that was on a stand in the middle of most of the time, the ghetto somewhere. I mean, it was a rough place. Where pay and, and a payphone was a box phone open to the elements and the public that had enough germs on it to send the CDC into meltdown, right? Like, if you caught something, it was from a payphone. Nobody's cleaning a payphone. The rain cleaned the payphone. I'd, I'd call my wife every day from a payphone. 
every day. One day, coming back from college, they'd canceled our nighttime college classes there at Daunt College, and man, it was snow and ice all over the place. Like, there were two or three inches on the ground. I'd not talked to Sherry all day long. It took me nine trips to get up a hill at Daunt College and finally get going, and went by a little shopping center that used to be there called Byman's Plaza, and it was high-tech. They had four payphones right there, like in a little cluster, and I'm the only idiot out there on a payphone, and, and I'm calling her, and you, you had to put a quarter in it. You remember that? You had to keep pocketfuls of quarter, and I put a quarter in it, and I called her, and, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, it's two, three inches on the ground. It's 29 degrees. When I peel the phone off my face, my skin's going to come with it. You know, like when you stick your tongue on a light pole, on a, you know, pole when it's cold. And she's like, oh, well, let me go into, she went to like a utility room, sat on the washing machine and would talk to me. And, and she said, so let me tell you this morning, I said, hey, do we, do we have to start it this morning? It's 29 degrees out here. I'm basically just calling, but I stood in the snow and rain. You know why? Because it was that important for me to communicate. But then you know what happens? You get married and it all stops. Okay, when you do not communicate, when you do not talk as a couple, you will begin to drift apart. You have to talk. So let me give you five don'ts about communication. Number one, don't assume communication has taken place. You may have used all of your words today, but your spouse may not have used all of their words, and it's, you still need to talk. Number two, don't assume your spouse knows what you mean. There are more arguments between husband and wife because you assume that uh, uh, the other one understood you. Don't ever assume that. Number three, don't yell. Arguing is not communicating. If you find yourself yelling at one another, you are not communicating. Number four, don't withdraw. Some, some, sometimes a spouse, when, when there's um, uh, maybe some tense moments, they will shut down and they'll turn off communication. It's the worst thing in the world for your marriage. Number five, don't talk to anyone more than your spouse. Hey, can I tell you this? If these words ever come out of your mouth, boy, I can talk to you so much better than I can my wife or my husband. You should run to the altar, get right with God immediately. And start talking to your spouse. Let me give you some five do's. Here, here we go. Number one, do ask open-ended questions. Hey, let me ask you a question. Look this way. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it. How was your day? That's the end of the conversation. Don't ask. Don't do that. Ask open-ended questions. Tell me about your day. Number two, save some things for face-to-face -face communication. There are times I, something exciting happens during the day, and I text it to myself to remind myself to talk about it tonight with my wife as we go out to eat or sit down in the recliners because I want to save some stuff for face-to-face -face communication because we talk all day long. Number three, do care about what the other person cares about. What's that old country song? It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about number one. Oh, something, my, me, my. I don't know. Um, a lot of times we're that way. you got to care about what your spouse cares about. Number four, use digital devices to communicate, but put them down when you are together. You've seen the couple at the restaurant, right? They haven't seen each other all day. It's six o'clock. They're eating together. And what are they both doing? And they haven't said a word to each other because they're doing this. When you, when you have your spouse face-to-face, -face, set your phone down. Number five, do relay more than facts. Happy couples talk more. Let me show you the second thing we know about happy couples. Number two, happy couples encourage more. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. 
Now, if we wanted to break, I could retranslate two words in there and it would be fine in the Greek for me to do it. Let me do that. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for encouragement that it may impart love to the hearers. That would do no injustice to the Greek if we translate it that way. What is good for encouragement that it may impart grace to the, uh, 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 love to the hearers. Here's what we know. Happy couples cheer each other on. Happy couples encourage one another. Happy couples build the other one up. Your marriage should be full of encouragement. The Bible bears that out. We are to be one another's encouragers. And that doesn't just mean people at church or people at work. That means primarily start with your spouse. One study found this. One study found that happy couples, when they encourage each other, number one, they give compliments. Number two, they show appreciation for big things and small things. They don't take anything for granted. Number three, they do something nice for their spouse. And number four, to encourage them, they relive a fun memory. Those things are encouraging things. And I want to tell you this, happy couples are going to be a cheerleader for each other big time. And my wife's in the early service, but my wife has been this for me, and she has even taught my girls to be this way for me. Uh, my wife could not be a bigger cheerleader for me. One of the reasons our marriage is so great today is she is the biggest cheerleader I have. I know more. When I preach a sermon, I know more. Get out the door, and she's telling me it's the best sermon she's ever heard every week. And I know it's not, but I'm letting her do it because I need it. I, I, guess I know, I know. She's taught my girls to do it. Michaela, uh, if she's in church, Michaela will call me. Michaela's watching uh, online right now. She'll, she'll call me and she'll say, Dad, that is the best. Michaela's probably told me three times this year, that is the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. I just feel like I'm getting better and better and better at this, right? My, my wife, Savannah, will do the same exact things. My wife has taught my girls. One time we were living in Atlanta, and when you walked in the front door, we had a landing, and all three of my girls were at the landing. I just walked in the door, and they started clapping for me, and I'm like, I don't even know what I did, but man, I'm awesome at something. I am awesome at something. They are encouragers. Yesterday was my birthday. We do this on each other's birthdays. I went in to fix a cup of coffee in the kitchen early Saturday morning, and there were post-it notes all around our kitchen that my wife had written out that were words of encouragement. I, I wrote down, I took pictures of a few of them. Here is uh, emotional encouragement. I love the way you love me. Right, that's so sweet. It's encouragement, cheerleader. Here is uh, spiritual encouragement. You're, and I, I cut it off at the top accidentally. You're my favorite preacher, she said. Like, I know I'm not the best, but... I'm, 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 she loves me. And then you've got sexy legs. Let me put that one back up there because that one's important to see. You got sexy <laughs> legs. That was on the refrigerator. Happy couples encourage one another more. Let me give you one don't and one do. They're not on the screen. Number one, don't tear down and discourage. If you're always pointing out faults, you will never have a happy marriage. I know what some of you are thinking, but preacher, he's a mess. I know, and you married it. Like, you say, well, how am I going to fix him? <laughs> you should have done that before you walked down the aisle. You say, well, I thought things would get better when we got married. Man, you did not do marriage counseling with me then. Because like the honeymoon period is like, it lasts about a week, right? And, and so, like, so, you get, so here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to learn to overlook some things, live with some things, and have some patience with some things. 
you can, you can, you can help him or her become a better person, but it's going to take some time. And I'm going to tell you this, constant negativity is going to put you in a miserable marriage. I don't care what you think. You thought, well, I think I can nag it out of him or her. Nope. Just going to make a miserable marriage is all it's going to do. And number two, do be a cheerleader. Constantly compliment needs to be the mantra of your house and do exactly what Ephesians 4.29 says do. Let me show you the third thing. I'm going to move a little faster. Number three, happy couples fight better. My wife quotes Proverbs 15.1 all the time. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You've got to learn how to have a soft answer and fight better. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, preacher, you mean happy couples don't fight, right? No, that's not what it means. I read a study. I didn't even put this up here. I read one study that said the more you fight early on in marriage and work through it, the happier and stronger your marriage will be later on in life. Here's the truth. You are going to argue those first few years are going to be pretty rough. Those first few years you're going to fight because, I mean, honestly, he changed when you married. She changed. You realize that, you know, ladies, I don't mean it's ugly. You, you thought you were getting the, you know, the notebook and you got Rambo. I mean, like, it's not the same thing. Like, it's just different. You want him to frolic through a lily field at night. He wants a bag of Doritos and a ball game, and he's not going to change. That's kind of who he is, and so you're going to fight. And by the way, the first time many of you saw her without makeup was the morning after, right? And you're like, oh, my goodness. Where's my wife? Her feet stink, and his breath is bad, and man, the stuff just starts. And the first few years can be rough, but if you're arguing 5, 10, and 25 years in the marriage the same way you did year one, something is wrong. You've just got to learn to fight back better. You've got to learn to have a soft answer. And here's what research tells us, and this is research, that here's what happy, unhappy couples do when they fight. And you can just read these quickly. Number one, they criticize one another. Number two, they show contempt or a lack of respect. Number three, they roll their eyes. I don't know if anything gets me more than somebody rolling their eyes at me. I'm like, did you just sneeze? I'd fake a sneeze if I were you because that, that, that is not good. They act defensively. We all do that sometimes. Number five, they resort to name calling. Now, I don't mean like dove. You know, I mean like name, name calling. And the worst thing of all, they, they tune out. When somebody starts checking out of arguments in a negative way, your marriage is close to over because they've ceased to care. So you, you, you can't let that happen. And then here's, here's what happy couples do when they argue. I love this. They show humor. Now, that's hard to do sometimes. I'm going to be honest with you. But if you'll step back and make fun of yourself... Humor should never be at someone else's expense. You make fun of yourself. You can diffuse a fight. Number two, they express affection. It is hard to fight with somebody when they're hugging you. Not strangling, hugging you. <laughs> hugging. And number three, they give in on certain points. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever, I want, I want to take a vote. How many of you have ever been in the middle of a fight, a knockdown drag out with your wife, and about 50% of the way through it, you thought, huh, I don't even really care about what we're fighting about. How many of that's ever happened before? Let me see your hand. Be honest. You've been halfway through a knockdown drag out and you thought, I don't even really care. But you know what you do? You dig in and keep fighting. 
You know why? Because you've already drawn a line in the sand. You're going to look like an idiot now if you back down. Can I give you some advice? Look like an idiot. Say, you know what? I'm stupid. I don't even care about this. I am a moron. Yeah, I agree with you, honey. You're right. And she'll say, well, I didn't call you a moron. And you'll say, I know the word you said, I don't feel like it's right for a Christian to repeat. So I'm not going to say that one, but you meant moron. And so um, when you find yourself in the middle of an argument that you don't care about, back out. When you find yourself in the middle of an argument that you do care about, sometimes just give in. If, if, if the fate of humanity is not at stake, let it go. You say, preacher, I was right. I know it. You can be right or in love. Your choice. You cannot be both. You're just going to argue. Learn how to do it well. By the way, Brigham Young, Brigham Young University, BYU, just did a study and said, don't fight over text. Here's what they discovered. That couples who argue over text, apologize over a text, and, and or attempt to make decisions over a text are less happy in their relationships than couples who fight and argue face to face. Let me show you the fourth thing. Happy couples fight. But number four, happy couples keep kids in the right place. Look at Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his what? Wife. And they shall become how many flesh? One. You and your spouse until the day you die are one flesh. Husband plus wife equals one. Husband plus wife plus kid equals how many? When kids come, life gets crazy. Can I get an amen right there? And when kids come, what happened is they take up a lot of couple time and very unintentionally, they drive a wedge between mom and dad. So here's what happens. You, you take Josh and Michaela's situation right now. They've been in hospital three weeks. Their baby's there for 10 or 11 days already. All of a sudden, all of this energy that you were pouring into the spouse, you now by necessity have to pour into a child uh, who's in the hospital and stuff like that starts happening. But if you're not careful, what you begin to do is you, you keep the gas tank on the kids full and you keep the gas tank on the spouse empty. And here's what I need to tell you. When your children grow up and move out, you're going to be strangers in the same home. Because you've put all of your energy, you've put all of your investment into your kids. And God never meant for your kids to take the place or take the energy of your spouse. Can I tell you something? Your kids are going to leave you one day. Or they're going to move the basement. One or the other, they're getting out of the main part of the house. Like I used to ask Michaela, my, my youngest daughter, I used to ask Michaela when she was five years old, I'd say, who are you going to marry when you grow up? And she'd say, daddy. I said, that's right, sign right here, right here on the line. She married Josh. <laughs> like my, my girls, they, they, they're in love with their husbands. You know, they married somebody else. They left me. They left me. Now, if all of our energies had been put into our kids, they moved out. They have the audacity to say things like, well, Daddy, I love him the most. How dare you? I wiped your bottom when there was junk on there that shouldn't have been touched. They, they moved out and they left me and changed. Here's what you got to figure out. 
They're going to leave you one day. And there is an epidemic of divorces of people in their 50s when they become empty nesters when that last kid graduates high school. So how do you stop that? Number one is this. Let your kids know your spouse is number one. Hey, we could not be closer as the family. Me and Sherry and my two girls, and then me and Sherry and my two girls and our two son-in-laws, we could not be closer as a family. But my girls will tell you, 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 you ask you my girls, who does mama love most? They'll say daddy. You ask them, who does daddy love most? Say mama. We told them that. We told them we love you with all of our heart, but I love mama more than anybody. And mama, mama would say, I love daddy more than anybody. We let our kids know our spouse was number one. And one of the ways we supported that was number two, we don't keep secrets. Now, my, my girls really have never done this to me. My girls have never come to me and said, Dad, I want to tell you something, but don't tell Mom. We never did that. But they, they'd oftentimes, because that's the nature of kids, they'd say, Mom, hey, I need to tell you something, but don't tell Dad. And here's what Sherry always said, I'm telling Dad. So just so you know, we, Dad and I keep no secrets. Now, she may choose the right time to tell me, which is normally in a public place at a restaurant right after dessert. She would tell me. But she always told me. She always told the girls she was going to tell me. They knew. So the girls knew not to say to mom, I'm going to tell you something, but don't tell dad. Because she knew I, I was going to get told one or the other. Do not keep secrets. You drive a wedge. It is not us against dad or us against mom. It is mom and dad and y'all are in our world. Number three. This is, look, this, number three is going to be hard for some of you to digest because you have kids at home. Just hang with me. Number three, do things without your kids. Mom and dads, you need to have a date night. You want a good marriage? You need to find somebody to keep your kids, pay them whatever it takes, have a date night. We, we never had a lot of uh, uh, parental support with our kids when, when they got older. And so we just, you know, we'd find somebody to keep our kids. We we're going to date night regularly. You've got to do that. We'd get away. But listen, the greatest thing we ever did in the world was when Michaela was about in middle school, early middle school, and Savannah was in early high school, we had a friend who may be in this room here this morning who kept our kids, and Sherry and I went to Florida on vacation by ourselves. We rented a condo on a golf course, and guess what we did all week? You know what we did? We went to Disney World without our kids. And it was the best thing ever! And there are couples pushing, pushing baby strollers and dragging four-year-olds behind them. And we're like, <laughs> so dumb. You're so, like, there, were, there were couples with teenagers and middle schoolers and high schoolers. And they're like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And I'm like, we're here by ourselves. <laughs> it was awesome. So well, I could never vacation out my kids. You're going to need to because one day you'll have to. You don't be married to a stranger. Number four, never let them see you fight. You're going to fight. Don't do it in front of them. When you fight in front of your kids, you force them to emotionally take sides. And now you're pitting them. By the way, moms, if you have girls, you, you, you get your girls on your side to the detriment of your marriage. Guys, you have boys, you get them on your side to the detriment of your marriage. It may make you feel good in the moment. It's, it's killing your marriage. Don't fight in front of your kids. Number five, this one will probably get a groan. Kiss in front of your kids. I mean like good old lip smacking kiss. I don't mean pecks on the cheek. I mean go in, go in hard. <laughs> we, 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 they, we went to Community Pie Pizza in downtown Chattanooga yesterday for my birthday and 
and Michaela and Josh just had a brief moment to get away from the hospital and come meet us there. And I dropped my wife off, and, and Michaela was with me and dropped them off, and I went and parked, and I'd gone and parked, and I came back, and I was the last one to slide into the booth. And right when I slid into the booth, I slid in next to Sherry, and I was just so happy to see her because uh, I'd only it'd been like three minutes since I'd seen her. And so I was so happy to see her that I slid into the booth. I threw my arms around her waist. I pulled her in tight, and we just started a Bible study right there in front. No, we, we, I mean, like I just planted a big one on her. I mean, and just, and we lost ourselves for just a moment until Michaela was like, come on y'all. Josh's like, come on y'all stop. We've done that all their lives. I don't care what you think. Let me tell you this study after study after study show the number one thing you can do to raise healthy children is have a healthy marriage. And we want our kids to know we are in love with one another. So kiss in front of them. You, you can do it right now if you want to, if you can get permission to do it. Number five, happy couples figure out finances. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you had. For God said, I'll never leave you, never fail you, and I'll never abandon you. Here's, here's, you've got to figure money out. According to Dave Ramsey, money is a leading cause of divorce. It's the second leading cause of divorce behind infidelity. And studies show that if you have a high level of debt and lack of communication, you're going to be filled with stress. Uh, one study said that if you argue with your spouse once a week about finances, you are 30% more likely to get divorced. Once a week, you're 30% more likely to get divorced. Another study said this that they measured young couples at the beginning of a three-year period, and there were some couples that had zero dollars in assets, and they, they put them in two categories, zero dollars in assets or at least $10,000 in assets. Now, that's not an enormous amount of assets, but for a young couple, that's a good start. The young couples who had zero dollars in assets were 70% more likely to get divorced in the three-year period than the couple that had $10,000 in assets. I'm saying all that to say money woes are money woes and they cause uh, difficult problems in the marriage. And so I want to say this. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on family and finances uh, weeks from now. But let me give you four quick tips. How do, how do we work through money problems? There's only certain ways you can do. Number one, make more. I know some of you are saying, preacher, that is not rocket surgery or brain science. I know, but you, you, so you make more. Maybe get a little more ambitious, maybe rev up your job, maybe get some more education, whatever you got to do, you may need to make more. Somebody may need to go to work, you know, you may need an extra job, but make more. You say, well, we can't make any more, all right, spend less. So you got up early for this, right? Like, you, you know, this is high-tech stuff here. You've got to live below your means. You've got to. So there's only two ways to do that, make more, spend less, or do a combination of the two. Number three, you've got to save some. You cannot be in financial ruin because your car needs brakes. And so many couples, they do this study every year. Could you come up with $2,000 in a week period? And the majority of America could not come up with $2,000 in a week. Beg, borrow, or whatever it took. Still, they couldn't do it. And you can't live that way. You, the stress of that is not going to be worth it. And number four, talk about finances. You've got to talk about finances without arguing about it. So I'll get to that later on. Happy couples. Number three, six. Happy couples hang out with the right people. Man, it's a great proverb. He who walks with wise men will be wise. 
the companion of fools will be destroyed. And that's true personally and that's true in your marriage. According to Brown University, if you hang out with a couple that is divorced, you are 75% more likely to get divorced yourself. That's, that's not a religious study. That's a secular study. That means you need to hang out with people who are on solid ground. I'm not telling you you shouldn't help your friends. I'm saying you need to hang out. Choose your friends carefully, especially the group of friends. You will become like the, the summation of the group of people you hang out with. You will be like them. So choose your friends carefully. Not only that, research tells us to have a lot of friends in common. 2013 Facebook analyzed 1.3 million users. And here's what they discovered. Of people who identified as married, the ones that had crossover friendships were less likely to break up and get divorced than those who had separate networks. As a matter of fact, Facebook discovered if you had separate networks, got married and brought them together, you were least likely to get divorced. And so here's what that means. Have the same group of friends, have a good group of friends, and be careful that you hang out with the right people. And speaking of Facebook and friends, be careful with social media. You have got to be careful with your online presence. I am so tired of hearing about breakups and divorces that happen because of Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, or any of the like or anything similar to it. You have absolutely no business starting a relationship online. Let me give you three things. Number one, share passwords. You're, you're, there should, and number two, no privacy. You, 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 there should be no privacy on your social media. My wife can read mine. If you send me a private message, my wife can read it. If, if, you, if you send me all that, I make it available. I, I have a browser on her phone. I sign into my Facebook. She can look at it anytime she wants to. Instagram, we have double account. All that. Like you, There should be no private. What are you trying to hide? And look, look, what, look at this, 81% of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers have used or encountered evidence taken from Facebook or a social media site. Facebook is really helping divorce lawyers nowadays. So be careful who you're hanging out with, even digitally. Number seven, I'm finished. I know it went long. Number seven, happy couples blend faith and family. Happy couples blend faith and family. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Here's what we're told, that the Christ-church relationship is a depiction of the husband-wife relationship. Here's what that tells us. Family and faith are naturally to be blended. And can I tell you, the world tells us the same thing. Here's what the world tells us. Spouses who attend church together often, often, that's the key word, are 2.4 times less likely to divorce than spouses who are not frequent churchgoers. Often. Not ever. Often. If you come to church uh, often you almost eradicate your chances of divorce in your marriage. Not only that, here's what we discovered. Fathers who attended church frequently were more invested in family life and their wives reported feeling more loved and more satisfied in their marriage. So let me give you three priorities here. Number one, make church attendance a priority. Man, I've heard so many families over the years say, well, preacher, we need family time. Can I tell you this? There is nothing you can do on Sundays that's going to keep your marriage together more than coming to church together will do. 
You say, well, we, we like to go to the lake in the summertime. There's not one shred of research that says going to lake together will keep your marriage together. But there's compounding research and evidence that says if you come to church together, uh, then uh, uh, your marriage is more likely to make it. So make church a priority. Go to the lake on Saturday, come back on Saturday night, go to church on Sunday and go after church. It's worth it to make church a priority. Number two, find places to serve. Number three, have a devotional life. Husbands and wives walk together, serving the Lord together. You have a quiet time. She ought to have a quiet time. Men, you ought to have one. Ladies, you ought to have one. Husbands, you ought to have one. Wives, you ought to have time. Well, you're spending every day, you're spending time in the Bible and prayer. And can I tell you this? You can close your Bibles. I'm finished. Can I tell you this? You're going to find it hard to be wrong with your spouse and right with God. As a matter of fact, you'll find it impossible. There's Bible that says you cannot be wrong with your spouse and right with God. Can't happen. So when you have a daily quiet time, you know what's going to happen. You're going to open your Bible. You're going to say, Lord, speak to my heart today. I want to draw close to you. And God's going to say, hey, here's what I'm speaking to your heart. Go apologize to your wife. Lord, I want to draw close to you. Yeah, you're not getting closer to me than what you are to your wife, your husband. The daily quiet time will do so much for your life. And so there it is. You want to make your marriage stick? You want to make it happy? Talk more, encourage more, fight better, keep kids in the right place, figure out your finances, hang out with the right people, and blend faith and family. Let's stand up together. Here's what happens. If you, wanna, if you want your marriage to be right, a lot of what I put on the board, can I tell you this? It is impossible without the Spirit of God living in your heart. So here's where it starts. It starts with you knowing Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. So would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Our staff is coming this morning. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, that's where you start. You start by making sure Christ is in your life. Heaven is your home. And what Kelly sang about earlier, the same power that lives in you can, the Spirit of God can come alive in you and help you be a better husband, better wife. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, our staff is here. They'd love to pray with you. Just slip out from where you are, walk down the aisle and tell one of these guys, hey, I'd, I'd love to become a Christian. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.